We started several weeks ago uh, in the book of James, and we're going to be in the book of James actually for a few more weeks, even though it's only five chapters as we talked about. James kind of takes several different topics, and, and it seems like almost a, a shotgun approach, um, but it's really not. As you really, as we think through the things we've looked at so far, as we're going to look at today's message, there is kind of a common theme that runs through James, and uh, I believe actually James chapter 2 verse 12 gives us the theme of his book. And that is, so whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you'll be judged by the law that sets you free. Now in our first message, um, we talked a lot about the beginnings of, of James and who he was and all of that. And I know because the pastor poured water out on the floor, that that's all anybody remembers from that message. But... Um, but that's beside the point. But, you know, the idea here is James is trying to help people to understand what it means to follow Christ in all the different areas that come about in their lives. And we always read these things from a perspective that we, especially myself, I grew up in church. So for me, there's not much in here that I go, wow, I've never heard that before. There's sometimes it convicts me differently. Sometimes it, it shows me different things. But but I pretty much, you know, I mean, I could win a lot of times at Bible trivia. Because I've been around it enough, I can tell you the answers to the questions. But that doesn't mean much if I'm not living it, if I'm not doing what he's called me to do. But James is writing to a group of people that this is all new. They're trying to figure out, what does this mean? We're following Jesus. We believe he's the Messiah. But how do we live on a day-in, day-out basis because of that? Because all most of these people have known, especially the Jews that he's writing to, is Pharisaism. Now, we give the Pharisees a hard time. And deservedly so. Jesus gave the Pharisees a hard time. But when we think about how the Pharisees started, the Pharisees started as a good organization. Because it was during the time when the Jews were being held captive in different... Uh, they were underneath the Assyrians for a while, then under the Babylonians, then under the Medes and the Persians, and then under the Romans. And so the Pharisees were started as a group to protect the law in the midst of that. Their goal was to make sure everybody understood and knew the Old Testament so that they didn't forget God's covenant with them in the midst of being captives in a, in a strange society. So they started off as a good idea. Matter of fact, the Pharisees knew the Old Testament so well that they could take a dart and throw it at the Torah and if it, wherever it landed, they could quote that verse for you. So they knew the Old Testament. The problem is they began to add things to the Old Testament. And they began to tell people that this is what you need to do and live. But as Jesus said, they tell you how to live, but they're not doing it themselves. And so James is saying, look, this is what it's like. It's not just what you say, it's what you say and what you do. And that's judged not by this controlling God up here who's going to strike you down, but it's, it's judged by the law of liberty, one person says. The law that sets us free. He's saying, now you've been given freedom in Christ, but that doesn't mean do whatever you want. I was reading something this last week, and I can't remember the, the, who the guy was. It was one of the, the well-known evangelists back from the early 1900s. But someone said, you know, so you're saying 
that because of my freedom in Christ, I can do whatever I want? And he said, yeah. So the guy said, okay, well, go with me to the bar. He said, what you don't understand is, I don't want to. It's because of who I am in Christ. Christ has changed my want to. And so he's saying here, whatever you do, whatever you say, is judged by that law of liberty that says you're free, but you're free in Christ. And you're free to allow him to change who you are and mold you and make you who you are. And so as we've been talking about, and if you think about everything we've taught so far, in the first chapter, he talks about going through trials and struggles and seeing those trials as God's gift. And that the fact that we triumph through in the midst of all of that is because God's given us the grace to do it. And then he talks about, you know, listen and be slow to speak and quick to hear the word of God so that you live it out. He talks about in James chapter 2, to not show partiality, to not, to not favor one person above the other. Why? Because of who you are in Christ. You know, and so last week we talked about, he began chapter 3 verse 1, says, let not many of you become teachers because as such you will incur a stricter judgment. That's a scary thing for those of you who are teachers. For those of us who stand up here. It's not because we're more important, we're more responsible. Because the reality is, I don't know what you believe, but you hear things coming out of my mouth when I'm standing up here. And if I say something just totally off the wall, if you trust me, you go and you go off the wall too. Now, I always want you to always understand, anytime I'm up here, I I think Brian would say the same thing. If you hear something that we say and you go, I'm just not real sure about that. Pull us aside. Say, I'm not real sure about that. It may be that that we need to just explain it. You go, okay, well now I understand it. Maybe we go, man, I don't know where I got that from. I'm sorry. And we have to apologize for it. Because we're all in this together. But the point is, what we say, as we talked about last week, what we say reflects who we are. So now we're coming to a passage that's, you know, we've already talked about it in James. James is not, you know, one of the books you preach through when you want everybody to just have a good time. You know, because he's there to say, if this is true in your life, this should be real for you. And so now we're getting to a passage that really is one of my favorite passages. Now, when I was younger, like I said, I grew up in church, and I can remember as about an 11 or 12-year-old kid hearing the story of Solomon. How many of you are familiar with the story of Solomon? Solomon was young. He's now becoming king. God says, whatever you want. As you're leading in my kingdom, whatever you want, ask for it, you got it. Solomon says, well, you know what? I'm young, don't have any idea what it means to be a king. Will you give me wisdom to lead your people? And God says, well, because you asked for wisdom, I'm also going to give you all these other things. Now, that sounded like a good story to me. I thought, you know, wisdom's a good thing to ask for. And I remember as a kid saying, Lord, give me wisdom. I don't know what that means. I'm not leading anybody as a 12-year-old. But give me wisdom. But I'll tell you what I thought that meant. Now, when I was a kid, there was also a commercial on television. And it came back a few years ago, kind of being popular again, where a kid goes up to an owl and he says, how many licks does it take to get to the center of this Tootsie Roll Pop? You might remember that? that? You know, and it's one, two, three. It takes three licks to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop. You know, but we always have that picture of this guru sitting up on the mountain, you know, with the long beard and his legs crossed in ways that I can't do it. And you ask him all the questions and he's got all the wisdom in the world. He can tell you everything you need to know. 
And it's a good thing to hope for, right? I want to be that person that everybody comes to me for wisdom. He's the good guy. But as we look at this passage today, and as you look at the life of Solomon, you know, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon realized later on in his life that, you know, he didn't really live with a lot of wisdom. He may have had a lot of knowledge, but he didn't really live out the wisdom that God gave him. And we'll see here, because wisdom is not what I can say, not what I know, it's not my, my ability to, to answer all the questions, it's how I live. So let's read the passage together. James chapter 3, beginning verse 13. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be, you will find disorder and every evil of every kind. Sorry. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness." James says, if you're claiming to be wise, prove it. He doesn't say, prove it by what you say. Prove it by how you live. One version says, demonstrate it. See, if we're going to truly say that we're wise, and and God has given us this, this ability to understand and know who he is and be able to share that with others, it should affect our lives. That's what Jesus said about the Pharisees. It wasn't their knowledge that was important. He said, they can tell you all kinds of things and you need to listen to what they're telling you, but they're not living it out themselves. There are a lot of preachers out there who can tell you a lot of good things and will preach the truth, but from their lifestyle you go, you don't want to be that way. And so the issue is for wisdom is, how does it, how does it work itself out? You know, we're all familiar with the words, you know, actions speak louder than words. We say it all the time, right? Because it doesn't matter what someone says, how they live makes the difference. Because you can say it all day long. You know, there's another way that Jesus referred to the Pharisees. He said they were blind guides leading blind people. Have you ever seen that? Now, yesterday I was at CIU's homecoming and there was a lady there with a service dog. But she, I don't remember why she had the service dog, but she was not blind. And so this lady... Gets right up in her face and goes, well, you just don't, you just don't act like you're blind. And she's going, well, I'm not, you know. I, I, said, I wanted to say, the dog's blind. I'm here to help the dog. I'm showing the dog around. You know, but so, you know, they assumed that she was blind, you know. But, so I don't know what, what the problem was that she had a service dog, but she wasn't blind. But, you know, the issue is you don't want to see someone who's blind trying to help somebody else who's blind get across the street. You know, it's just not going to be a good thing. You know, Jesus said they're going to fall into a ditch together. You know, so, so he said that's what the Pharisees were like. You don't want to be that person. You want to be the person whose lifestyle is different. Paul Cedar says, the one who actually possesses godly wisdom is the one who is manifesting good conduct and works in his or her daily lifestyle. You know, we want people to think we're wise. 
a phrase my mom used to always say, and I never did quite understand it, and I still don't understand it, but it makes sort of sense, is that the proof is in the pudding. Now, I don't know where that comes from, but it doesn't matter how much you say you're wise, the proof is in the pudding. So he says, some people say they're wise. And, and so this is what it should result in. If you're wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works. How? With humility that comes from wisdom. Paul says, knowledge puffs up. James says, wisdom brings humility. So how do you know that wisdom brings humility? What does Proverbs say wisdom is? Where does wisdom come from? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You don't think the fear of the Lord humbles you? It better. Understanding that what you say and how you live is going to be judged by that law of liberty. That, that Christ is going to say, I set you free. Why didn't you live that way? Then we, that, that should help us to go, you know what? I can't do this by myself. Wisdom doesn't come from re- me reading a bunch of books and being able to answer a bunch of questions. Wisdom is going to come as I say, Lord, I need your wisdom to work through me. Remember James 1, 5, where we poured the water on the floor? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. He's there to give that wisdom when we ask, to give that wisdom when we ask, to give that wisdom. But we've got to stop and say, Lord, I need your wisdom. I need to be humble. I need to be following you. He says, but, but if you're bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. Don't try to pretend to be something you're not. If your goal is to have everybody think you're the most wonderful person in the world, and you live that life where anytime somebody else is, is exalted or, or shown approval, you go, man, why didn't they talk to me? Why didn't they tell me that? They told them the nice things. They didn't tell me that. You know, you're beginning to get jealous, and we see it. And we see it rare up in our own lives. You know, whenever someone succeeds, do we rejoice that they're succeeding? Or do we kind of begrudge their success? Do we want that success? And so, he's saying, if these things are true, don't lie and cover up the truth. Now, I know it's real popular today to say, well, you know, I just told the truth. He's not saying that. He's not saying to don't lie and cover up the truth, so just go tell everybody how miserable you think they are. He's not saying that. But he's saying, quit pretending to be something you're not. Humility says, this is who I am. And I realize that there are, I, I have some gifts and some strengths and some things that God has given me that, that is good. I have some things that I go, man, Lord, yeah, I really wish this wasn't in my life. But every time I, I tend to think that I'm going to get rid of it, I go right back, you know, Humility is that balance of understanding. You know, we talk about low self-esteem and high self-esteem. I don't like to use that terminology. I like to say we need to have an accurate self-esteem. That, that biblical balance that says, yes, without Christ, I can't do anything. But with Christ, I can do everything. And so I... I, I in humility, go back and forth between us who and lean on him. So he says, don't, don't boast and lie. You know, it says here that this, 
This person will argue that they are jealous for the truth, but the bitterness, rigidity, and pride prove them wrong. You know, I'm just trying to, to, to stand on the truth. Now, there's a, in verse 15, in the New Living Translation, which is not a, on this verse anyway, can you go back to that verse? I'm sorry. On verse 15, it says, such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. But in the original language, it doesn't say such things. It has just a little word that, that I, I think is really my favorite word in all of Scripture. It's the word but. Now, there's two different words used for the word but in Scripture. There's the, I was going to go over here, but I decided to go over there. You know, not, it's just a little word, just means change my mind. I was going over here, but I decided to go over here. There's another word that says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus. That's the word he uses here. He's saying, you're thinking you're wise, you're thinking you've got all this good stuff you want to give to people, but the wisdom of the, the world is what? Three things. First off, earthly. That's pretty bad. Unspiritual, that's really bad. Demonic. Anytime you think you're wise and you think you're helping everybody else and it's all coming from the world and not coming from the Lord, it's earthly and unspiritual and demonic. That's why that Jesus gave the Pharisees such a hard time. Their wisdom was not coming from above. Their wisdom was their own that they had made up and they changed everything around to make it fit for them. And so it was earthly and unspiritual and demonic wisdom. So James is being tough on us here again, but that's okay. So he says, you think that all these things, but that is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. He says, for where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and evil of every kind. That's the result of ungodly wisdom. Of, of human wisdom, the result is disorder and evil of every kind. The idea here is nothing is going to go right. And then, now, it all depends on how you judge that. Sometimes it looks like everything's going right because the person has a lot of money. They have a lot of success. They have a lot of people who like them. But that's still demonic. It's bringing disorder and every evil thing. So let's, okay, now that's enough bad news, way. Let's, let's change. Okay, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others, full of mercy and good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. So he says several different words. He says, first off, it's pure. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a, seems like a strange law. As we, you know, if you ever read through the book of Leviticus, how many people have ever actually made it through the book of Leviticus? Anybody here? Okay, one or two. Uh, yeah, those are the, well, you've you hung in there. Good job. Um, you know, in Leviticus, over and over again, it says, you need to bring this animal. And what about this animal? They're to be one year old, and they are to be without defect. One year old without defect. That's the same word he says here for pure. It's without defect. The wisdom that comes from God, and when we live in that wisdom and trust in that wisdom, and that wisdom is without defect. It is pure. It is unalloyed. 
And so we live the way he's called us to live. It's, it's not a, a sexual purity idea. It's just the idea of it's, it's always got the pure motive and the pure heart. The, the without defect, the, the unalloyed. It's peace-loving. The idea here is it's, it's free from anxiety. The idea is it, it brings peace to others as well as yourself. He says it's gentle at all times. The idea here is that the wisdom that comes from the Lord is unassertive. It's not trying to make you come to my way of thinking. It's that I teach and I love and I show Christ so that you can understand and be, be persuaded on your own and I'm not trying to assert myself and make you think what I think you should think. It says willing to yield to others. It does not always have to be right. Willing to listen. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago in James 2. Even though that's talking about the word of God, the idea here is be be. Quick to hear, slow to speak. You ever known somebody who is so wise, you don't ever get a word in edgewise? <laughs> they got to tell you everything they know and how good it is that they know it and how you're stupid because you don't. I mean, we, we, we've all met people like that. I've been that way myself. My kids say, Dad, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. I go, what do you mean? Just because I was sarcastic? I mean, come on. You know my heart. You know I didn't mean anything by, that was the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, you know, I didn't mean anything by that. Come on, you know I love you. Uh, anyway, so this issue here is that they're willing to yield. To say, you know, I remember a gentleman named J. Oswald Sanders who was probably, for me, a spiritual mentor even though I'd never met him from books he wrote. He talked about being in a meeting where he was overseeing what's now the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. At the time, it was China Inland Mission. And he said he knew that God was leading them a certain direction. He was just 100% sure that was what they needed to do. But in the leadership meeting, everyone else felt they needed to go a different direction. He said, so I set my personal thoughts aside. And we did what the team said. That's willing to yield to others. That shows wisdom. He also comes back to say he was wrong. And he realized that the decision they made was the right decision. But if he had stood firm, he was the boss. He could have said, no, this is the way we're going to do it. But he was willing to yield to others. Full of mercy and good deeds. In Matthew chapter 25, 24, 25, I can't remember exactly which one. Jesus talks about dividing up the sheep and the goats. But he talks about talking to, to the, both of these groups of people. And he says, one of them, he says, when I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And one group goes, well, when? When were you doing all these things and we didn't take care of you? Then he goes to the other group and he says the same thing. But when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they go, when, Lord? We don't remember that. See, the person who is full of mercy and good deeds doesn't keep track of it. It's so much a part of who they are, they just do it. They just show that mercy and they don't even remember because 
It's just what they do. So he says, godly wisdom is full of mercy and good deeds. Shows no favoritism. We talk about in James chapter 2, verse 1. You know, that there's no idea that I've got my little group of people and I hang out with them. And it says no prejudice, and we always use that to mean racial prejudice because of what we've seen in our lifetime. But it can be prejudice towards anything. The idea here is I, I don't sit and go, this group of people is better than this group, and so I'm going to hang out with this group here. And so it's a, there's no prejudice. And it's sincere. This word, I really, I like this word. Because, I don't know if, it, I think it's not too many weeks ago, we talked about the word hypocrite. And the word hypocrite comes from, it was the idea of an actor. Remember the, the hypocrites were the ones who put the mask on to pretend to be something they, they're not. Well, this word here is an hypocrite. A-N hypocrite. Which in, in the original language is, it's the negative. It's saying you're not a hypocrite. You can't, I read one guy, he said, unable to act. Now, you know, all my, my family have been in plays and all of that kind of stuff. And, and I was always the one cooking the popcorn out back. And so, because, you know, it's just not me. You know, what you see is what you get. I'm unable to act. You know, so I like that. I like that word, though. You know, because he says to be sincere is you're unhypocritical, anti-hypocritical. That's what godly wisdom is all about. So what does it produce? It says, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Galatians 6, 7 says, you will always harvest what you plant. I grew up in the city, kind of an area of Atlanta that you wouldn't want to live in now. Um, but I can remember trying to grow corn in my backyard. You know, because some people in the neighborhood had, you know, gardens in their backyard. And I can remember my corn plants getting about this tall and each of the ears being about that big around. It didn't work, okay? But one thing I can guarantee you, when I put the corn in the ground and watered it, even though it wasn't good corn... It was corn that came up. Not peas. Nothing else. Because what you plant is what's going to grow. He says when you plant peace, then you're going to reap peace. When we plant seeds of peace, you'll reap a harvest of righteousness. Warren Wiersbe says this, Knowledge enables us to take things apart, but wisdom enables us to put things together. Jesus shares a story. He said, there's two people. One person builds their house upon the sand. The other person builds their house upon the rock. When the storms come, the person's house is on the sand is destroyed. The person's house is on the rock stands firm. Now, how does he term those people? The person that builds his house upon the rock, he calls what? The wise man. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. You know, as I was looking through this list of characteristics of godly wisdom, I started thinking through different passages of Scripture over the years that I've looked at 
that are almost the exact same list. A few weeks ago, or a few months ago, we did a series through the Beatitudes. If you listen, if you read the Beatitudes, it's almost like reading this list. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. It's like we're going through the exact same list. I read one person uh, paraphrased uh, 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8 like this. I am always long-suffering and kind. I am never envious. I am never puffed up. I never behave myself unseemly. I never seek my own. I am never provoked. I never think evil. I never rejoice in iniquity, but I always rejoice in the truth. I bear all things. I believe all things. I hope all things. I endure all things. I never fail. If I'm living the love that we sang about just a few minutes ago, that the community is supposed to know, this should be true of my life. This is godly wisdom where my lifestyle is different. I'm showing love. I'm showing the Beatitudes. We can't do that on our own. One of my favorite paintings is this one right here. I love this painting. Because if you notice at the bottom of the lighthouse, there's a guy standing in the doorway. And he's just hanging out because he trusts the Lord in the midst of all the craziness. He's on the rock. His house is built upon the rock and the storms are coming, but he's secure because he's the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. You say, well, how do I do this? How do I I live in godly wisdom? One is go back and ask. You know, we talked about asking the Lord for wisdom. But there's a passage of Scripture that I think sums up what it means to follow Christ and to live the way He's called us to live pretty clearly. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says this, Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to, what, to do what, excuse me, I left out a word, to do what pleases Him. That's the key. Because some people will tell you, you just got to try harder. Just try harder. You know, just grit your teeth, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, make that New Year's resolution that you're not going to do that anymore. And you just, just grit your teeth and hang in there and do it. Other people tell you, I just let go and let God. You know, just tell God you want him to take that, that desire and that sin away. Now, the problem with that is, when the desire and the sin show back up, whose fault is it? You know, we blame God. Well, I ask him to take it away. Still there, what's wrong? The problem over here is, we, we, we beat ourselves up because no matter how hard we try, we can't do it. Well, he's telling you right here, work it out. But work it out because he gives you the desire and the ability to do it. Psalm 37 is misquoted all the time. Where people say, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And they say, if you delight yourself in the Lord, you'll get anything you want. It's not what that says. If you delight yourself in the Lord, he will change your desires. 
He will give you desires of your heart. He's saying here, yeah, there's a part that's my responsibility that I've got to do, but I can't do it except for in the power and the ability that he gives me to do it. At Columbia Bible College, over and over again, I heard messages from the former president that said his mother taught him the key to the Christian life is in his two hands. T-R-U-S-T-Y-I-E-L-D. Trust and yield. Those of us who grew up Southern Baptist and a friend of mine who has lost one finger, you can sing trust and obey. But the issue here is, it's what does God's word say? Man, I don't know if I can do it. But God, give me the strength and desire to do it. I'm going to step out and do my best in your power and in your strength. And the next day, I'm going to find something else that I trust and I step out and I yield. I trust and I yield. When Tabitha was learning to swim, it was an interesting uh, time. But she finally kind of learned to swim a little bit. And so then we're going to go to the pool. And I'm standing out in water that's about chest deep. And she's on the side of the pool. And I said, Tabitha, jump to daddy. Nope. Do you trust daddy's going to catch you? Yeah. Then jump. Nope. Don't you trust me? Sure I do. Then jump. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Nope. I'm not going to do it. I said, then you don't really trust me. See, we read the scriptures and we say, I believe this is true. And Jesus says, okay, jump. Mm, No. Not going to do it. Well, do you believe me? Yeah, I believe you. Then jump. Mm, No, no, afraid not. See, we trust that what he says, to live wisely, to be this godly wisdom that works itself out, comes from trusting him and stepping out in faith to do what he's called us to do. To live the way he's called us to live. Doesn't mean perfection. Doesn't mean we always get it right. But that's why we go back and we find out the next thing. And we trust and we obey. And we trust and we obey. Or we trust and we yield. Or trust and we yield. And we begin to, you know, it's funny because that same man, Robertson McQuilkin, when I was in Bible college, I just thought, you know, he never does anything wrong. You know, I mean, he was a godly man. And towards the end of my Bible college days was the early days of his wife having Alzheimer's. And and he actually resigned in 1990 to take care of her. But 1989, she would, you would find her sometimes just kind of wandering around campus looking for him. They lived on campus and she'd be wandering around looking for Robertson. And so you'd take her to his office. And I began to see, as much as he loved his wife, he, he resigned from the Bible college to take care of her, took care of her for 13 years before she died. But you could see an, an irritation. You know, of, not really with her, but just with the circumstance. And you could see, you know, and all of a sudden I started thinking, you know, he's a real person. He's not perfect. But he was wise. And he did have godly wisdom. And he did trust and yield. But he wasn't perfect. He had to do it every day. And every day he had to commit himself again to trust and to yield. So how do we become wise? First off, we ask. Remember, it's like the kid begging his dad. Daddy, 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 daddy. We get irritated. But God never gets irritated. 
He pours out His wisdom on us. And we trust Him in that and we yield and we do what He's called us to do. Then we begin to live wisely. And our lives change and people see that, not so they bring us honor and glory, but so that they're pointed to Christ. Let's pray.